Ephesians chapter 6. So we've been going through the book of Ephesians for a long time. We are wrapping it up uh, next couple weeks. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hands. Uh, we have ushers that would like to get you a Bible. We're going to be wrapping this up really quickly. Um, in short, what we've been looking at over the past several months are kind of two-part thing, series, if you want, looking at the tail end of the book of Ephesians. One, we've been looking at what Paul would identify or describe as the believer's warfare. In other words, as we move forward and follow Jesus, uh, there is this sense of pushback. Um, if you've ever walked and followed Jesus at any point or stage in your life, you know that there are moments and seasons where it's tough. It feels hard. You know that your deepest desires want to follow God, but you know that there are other desires that want to lead you away from following God. If you ever felt that, you know that's a real battle. It's a real distraction. The Bible describes that as being spiritual warfare. So we not only have looked at kind of the believer's warfare, but what we'll be focusing on, have been focusing on the past several weeks, is what we've been basically calling as the believer's uh, wardrobe. In other words, what we wear. Uh, Paul has basically saying that when you're in the middle of these hardships, like a soldier who's in battle, that a soldier has uh, armor to wear. He's got a weapon to carry. He's got a shield to protect himself. And so in the same way, Paul's basically thinking about the Christian and saying the one that follows Jesus, even though they may be in a battle, um, there's also a wardrobe that is to there help them, to benefit them, to strengthen them, so that when they're in the midst of the fight, and when they're in the midst of the, uh, the war for pushing against them, they'll be able to stand. The opposite of standing in Paul's vocabulary would be basically laying on your back. The idea of being vulnerable, the idea of being uh, subject to corruption and brokenness. What Paul is saying is you don't need to be subject to brokenness and subject to vulnerability, that you can be strong. That by in the midst of the battle, when the heat of the battle comes against you, that you can be strong because God has given us what he describes as the spiritual armor, the spiritual weapons that we are to arm ourselves with. So we'll be picking up at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13, and then we'll also take a look at verse 17. Paul's been basically taking us through this whole journey that what God's up to is he's bringing salvation. We say God's saving people. God's bringing salvation. These are all various ways of really describing God is not leaving this world and leaving you subject to decay. Amen? That's really good news. Like, most of us in this life, apart from God, we are just simply subject to decay. We're subject to corruptibility, that our hearts oftentimes go after things that lead us to deep places of brokenness. Maybe that's where some of you are at right now. You have tasted, filled your heart on things that have oftentimes, and really at the end of the day, left you feeling broken or defiled or messed up. But what the gospel basically does, is Paul says it comes in and it changes you, it transforms you, it gets rid of this old heart that's like, a, like an engine constantly driving you after things that are corruptible and broken. And rather than giving you, uh, taking the desires out of your heart for these corruptible things, Paul says that God gives you a new heart that desires incorruptible things. It desires God. God changes you. Now, even though you may be given a new heart that desires God, that is still in conflict. That's where that whole idea of warfare comes in, the conflict, the battle, the the military analogies that Paul uses. But Paul is basically saying that the salvation that God brings is not just to you and I as individuals, but it goes out to a community. It begins to transform the larger, broader community around us. In the context of Ephesians, Paul gives one of the greatest analogies 
that between uh, two basic factions in the first century, the Jews, Paul was Jewish, as well as the larger, broader, non-Jewish community, this was actually called the Gentiles. What Paul was saying is that because of what Jesus has done, Jesus has actually not only brought healing to people's individual lives, but through people's individual lives, he's brought communities together that were once fragmented, that were once torn apart, that were once subject to corruption. The gospel, in other words, brings healing. One scholar theologian kind of described it this way, that the gospel does not have a social agenda. It is a social agenda. It changes society. It changes people's hearts. It changes people's lives. And when you get enough people as individuals changed, that forms a society. Healing begins to spread out. I love that image because that's exactly what Paul's saying. Now, at the same time, there is healing taking place in individuals' hearts, in the broader community at large, between Jew and Gentile and so on and so forth. That is steeped in the middle of this warfare. So we have what Paul identifies as a devil, the devil who is constantly trying to undo, tear apart, bring apart, bring, up, bring apart all of this work that God has brought together in the gospel. This is what the devil is doing. He's trying to undermine and destroy or sabotage God's good work. So Paul is basically writing in kind of the final closing statements of this letter to these Christians saying, I want you to be aware. Don't be ignorant of the fact. That yes, there's pushback, yes, there's tension, yes, there's challenge to this healing gospel work that God's bringing into this world, but you don't need to fall prey to its brokenness. You can stand, and this is where we enter into the story of Ephesians chapter 6. I'll pick it up at verse 13, like I said, then I'll read verse 17. Verse 13 says this, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Jump down to verse 17, he says, and then take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit with which, uh, or which is the word of God. So what we'll focus on today is the latter part of verse 17, which Paul identifies as take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we'll talk about the word of God. So before I jump into this, as I was kind of studying, preparing for this, and I was kind of asking myself, like, which route should I go? And pastors do this a lot of times, they're trying to figure out, like, what direction should I take on this? And as I was originally kind of thinking about this, like, we should talk about how important the Bible is. And I think the reality is, uh, one of the thoughts that kept coming back to me is I think especially people that had been brought up uh, with any form or knowledge of Christianity or within a context of Christianity, which really a lot of us are, not necessarily everyone, but a lot of us. And if you are someone that has not been brought up within a Christian context, you know that Christians tend to place a high value or premium upon the Bible, especially the ones that are on you know, television or Bible thumpers or people, there's always kind of this spin on the importance of the Bible. And that's oftentimes leading to all forms of arguments and uh, frustration and, and angst and so on and so forth. So the point that I would make is that most people think, and at least identify, that Christians hold to the Bible as being a valuable book. So I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to convince you of the importance and the value of the Bible. I'll try to do that, at least within the context but my major, broader uh, angle that I want to approach this from is going to be really practical. Because I think most of us can look at the Bible and be like, oh yeah, it's valuable. It's important. We should learn it. We should know it. We should memorize it. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of us don't really know how to do that. So in other words, if you think of it this way, we've all been given uh, the equipment. We've been given, if you would, the Bible. Let me give you an example. How many of us actually own one Bible? Raise our hand. 
How many of you own, let's say, three Bibles? Raise your hand. More than, more than three. All right. That's a lot of us. More than five? More than 10? All right. I know I'm probably like in the 15 range. I got a lot of Bibles. Anyways, the point of the matter is most of us own Bibles. I'm not even going to bother asking how many of you actually read your Bible on a regular basis because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But the fact of the matter is, is that most of us have Bibles. We, to some degree, have some level of value placed upon the Bible. So it's not a matter of like, you know, if someone were to ask you, do you think the Bible's important? Most of us would be like, well, yeah, of course. It's really important. But if we were to press and say, how much do you delve into it? How much do you read it? How much is it part of you? How much do you have memorized it and think about it and meditate upon it and keep going over it and study it and listen to sermons on it? Most of us, I think, would be like, not me. So I want to really make this as practical as I can, and to really try to understand what are some practical ways in which we could really develop a better, I don't, for lack of better words, method of our lives, within our lives, to value the Word of God. What are some things that we can do? So before we do that, I want to kind of set the context for this a little bit and just ask a couple questions of the text. So first of all, we'll ask the question, really, like, what is the sword of the Spirit? Kind of start someplace. We'll start with what is the sword of the Spirit? So first of all, the word sword that Paul uses here. There's no doubt Paul's thinking about a Roman soldier. And the sword that he actually uses here, the Greek word, is a word that indicates basically what's called, uh, or like a short sword, or identified as like a short sword, as opposed to a broad sword. Kind of a soldier, a Roman soldier would have like oftentimes two types of swords. One a really long one, one a really short one. The long one was kind of, uh, or the short one I should say, was kind of more hand-to-hand combat, um, more up close, more personal. Um, and it was oftentimes used like every Roman soldier would have this. So this is the word that Paul actually uses here. The word spirit that he uses, he says it's the sword of the spirit. The idea here is that this sword, whatever it is, again, uh, Paul's speaking in metaphorical language because most of us um, don't obviously carry around like real uh, swords. Um, so it's metaphorical. Paul's referring to something. But the idea that he's conveying is a sword of the spirit. The word that's used here, a lot of scholars would identify this is probably a reference to the fact that whatever the sword is, it's a gift from the spirit of God. God gives us something, this, this agent, this third member of what we call the Trinity, this triune God who brings order into our lives, gifts us with this sword for a purpose. Not to crush, not to destroy other people, not to ruin other people's lives. I mean, I think most of us would agree that we've probably met Christians that use the Bible to tear others down. Right? We've been involved in those conversations on Facebook. We've seen blogs that utilize that. We've heard preachers and messages in which people use the Bible as a means to destroy and crush and ruin and bruise other people. But this is a sword of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The first, I, I love this image of the Holy Spirit. In fact, every time we sing a song about the Holy Spirit, I always get this picture in my mind. So when we sing songs like, you know, Spirit of the Living God, come fall afresh on me, or whatever the case is, any song that invites the Holy Spirit, I always think of Genesis chapter 1, uh, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, earth was uh, basically being brooded over by the Holy Spirit, who was bringing this, he was the agent who brought order and beauty and organization over all these things. In a sense, when we pray, when we say, God, let your Holy Spirit come upon me, what we're really asking, inviting God to do, is to bring order over our disorder, bring life over those areas that are just filled with chaos. And the spirit, the sword of the spirit, is a gift from him to be given to our lives 
so that now, not to bring chaos or destruction or brokenness in other people's lives, it's intended to bring order. It's a sword that brings order because it's a gift from the Holy Spirit. And in what way? So then finally, like, what is the sword? Because Paul goes on and basically answers our very question. He says, the sword of the Spirit. And he says, which is, that phrase, that transitional phrase, which is, he's basically now making the fullness of the comparison by the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, God's Word. Now, one final thing. Um, in the Greek, there are actually two words, at least, that are used, that are translated in our English word, first of which is logos. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 describes, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word became manifested. That word that's actually used there, translated word, is the word logos. We get our word like uh, logic from. This particular word that's actually used here is another Greek word that is called rhema. It's the idea, um, again, one of the ways I heard one scholar describe it is it's basically a life-giving word that is spoken in due season, in a good season. So in other words, whatever this uh, sword of the Spirit is, it is God's Word. If you're familiar with God's Word, God's Word is what brings order. God's Word is what spoke things into be. It's God's Word that Jesus would later go on to say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. That God's Word becomes, in our lives, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of darkness, uh, this re organizing, reordering, life-giving sword in our hands. That's what I think Paul is basically saying. So, again, what is the sword of the Spirit? All these things that we just described. Now, next thing I really want to kind of uh, unpack and try to understand a little bit in terms of, like, practicalities, how does this work out? What does it look like? Again, because most of us can, if, if I were to stop right here and just say, now, you guys all agree the Bible's awesome? You know, the Word of God is awesome, and most of us would be like, yeah, we clap, we'd be like, yes, praise God, it's awesome, the Bible's amazing. But most of us, if we just stop right here and we walk out of here, we'd be like, that's great, but what, what does that mean for us? Like, how do we live according to it? How do we live according to the Word of God? How do we activate it? How do we apply it to our lives? How do we, like Paul says, pick it up to do something with it? Because I think we'd all agree, no matter how much hype or excitement you have about a thing, it does not qualify you to carry it or wield it or use it. I mean, look, little kids are really into, like, lightsabers, all right? I mean, uh, all right, the lightsabers actually aren't real, but one day I hope they are. But point of the matter is if you gave a lightsaber to a kid, like, he does not use it. Like, he'd, he'd kill people, and it's not good. So the point of the matter is, is just because somebody knows about something or has some information about it does not qualify them to be able to use it. So if what Paul is saying is true that every follower of Jesus has been given the sword of the Spirit so that when the battle gets rough, when we find ourselves in the midst of temptations towards corrupting influences, Paul says you've been given the word of God. Do we know how to activate it? Do we know how to handle it? Do we, know how to, do we really know how to use it? And I think most of us would have to really just simply be honest. And look, being honest is the beginning step towards transformation. Or we can just continue to kind of play the game and be like, no, we all get it, we understand it, I was raised Christian, I understand how important the Bible is. If we really want to see effectiveness and change and transformation and help in our lives, there has to come some point where we have to simply be honest with the fact that even though we may admit or affirm, we love the Bible, we think the Bible's awesome, we think it's God's word, but it bores us. And at that point that we can simply admit that, if that's the case... 
then we're on a path to change. The, the longer we go on just kind of playing the game, acting like, oh, I believe the Bible, I believe God says what God says, I affirm all these things, but we don't see ever any change in our life. So here's kind of typically what happens. We are uh, professing evangelicals, for the most part. I'm not saying all of us. As I, I, I say that we have a tendency as westernized Christians to profess orthodox Christian theology. We profess the Bible's word of God. We profess God's word is life-giving. We profess all these things. But in practice, we're actually without God, or we're practical atheists. We live practically without God. Because even though we affirm God, we affirm God's power, we affirm God's effectiveness and life-giving generosity through his word, we practice constantly a life of corruption, brokenness, defilement, when at our disposal is everything we need to live. At our disposal is everything we need to flourish, to have life. This is what God promises us if we listen. So let's take a look at Jesus, because I think Jesus becomes this amazing example of really how to wield the word of God well. Jesus, obviously, we're familiar with his story, comes into this world as God become flesh. John 1-1 tells us God comes into this world. Um, and Jesus comes into this world, and Jesus then gathers together at around age 30 uh, with his cousin, who is, also happens to be a kind of a Christian celebrity, even though he wasn't Christian. Uh, his name was John the Baptizer, and he was out there baptizing people. Jesus goes and gets baptized. And immediately after Jesus' uh, baptism, it says that he was driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now we're up to Matthew chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 11. In verse 2, it says this, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter, this is another way of entering into the story, another name for the devil, the devil or Satan. He's also described here as the tempter. The tempter came to him, that's Jesus, and he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But then Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So first of all, the question is, what's going on here? Why is this such a big deal? Well, the answer to that, to some degree, is that Jesus is out in the wilderness spending 40 days, 40 nights. Why 40 days, 40 nights? A lot of scholars believe that what Jesus is basically doing is he's taking upon himself the fullness of the role of Israel. So, for example, how long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. Why is Jesus 40 days in the wilderness? Well, because Jesus is symbolically saying, I will do for Israel what Israel failed to do for herself. Like, Jesus goes into the wilderness, he's tempted 40 days. But in every circumstance, Jesus withstands the temptations rather than giving in to the temptations. Israel, not so much. Israel goes into the wilderness. Israel, rather than uh, withstanding the temptations, Israel basically was overcome by the temptations and Israel became corrupted. And that generation that came out of Egypt never actually went into the promised land because they were overcome by the temptations of the devil to complain, to gripe, to distrust God. So here's what's happening. Jesus, uh, towards the end of this whole scenario, Jesus is hungry. The devil comes to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, all sorts of rocks out here in the middle of the wilderness. When you think of wilderness, um, I don't know exactly what you think about, like in Israel's wilderness. Um, typically, when I first actually was thinking about wilderness, I thought like green and beauty and like a couple like beautiful like big trees and 
And that's absolutely nothing what it looks like. Want to know what it looks like? Have you ever driven out like the 40, what is it, the 45? 46, sorry, 46. Um, like going out towards like Baco, Bakersfield, sorry, um, slip. Um, going out towards Bakersfield, it's just nothing but like tumbleweed. That's the wilderness. That's exactly what it looks like. So if you've ever been to Israel, you just see for as far as you can see, there's just nothing but maybe a couple rocks. You've got to like dodge a tumbleweed. It's just absolutely nothingness. This is where Jesus would have been. This is the, I mean, uh, the climate is very similar uh, on the Central Coast in those areas to parts of the, the, the Holy Land. And so here's Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, at the end of this fasting, he's hungry. No doubt he's, he's hungry. The devil says, uh, you, obey my word. Do what I tell you to do, and, and you will live. So the real issue is, like, what's, what's wrong? What's the sin of eating bread? Nothing. But it's the source of where it's being promised. It seems to be the, the issue. Let me put it this way. Satan uh, uses all sorts of other deceptive means in our lives to speak to us, to guide us, to coach us towards life. Uh, bread, you kind of mentioned this earlier. Bread is sort of a metaphor. I mean, again, obviously in our culture, everyone's kind of freaked out by bread, and it's got gluten in it, and, you know, and uh, it's, just, it's just carbs, and we shouldn't eat that. It's bad. Um, and the point of the matter is, a bread in that culture was basically a staple of life. And so to talk about bread was to basically talk about life itself, that bread comes from God's hand and God gives life. So the point that I think is going on here is that Jesus has a choice. Do I listen to the devil? Do I listen to his voice, his promptings, and do what he tells me to do? Or do I hold to what God says? And again, is God saying, don't eat bread? Uh, but again, the real point is, do I listen to the devil? So the point that I would make is this. Every one of us, we have voices that speak to us, guiding us, leading us, coaching us, promising us life. What voice do we listen to? In this case, Jesus says, I won't listen to the voice of the tempter. So he denies it, and he quotes scripture, actually. Verse 5, he says, And then the devil took him to a holy city and set him before a pinnacle, of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and their hands, uh, on their hands, they will bear you up, and lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus said in verse 7, Again, it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God or put him to the test. So the picture that is going on here, the second temptation, Jesus is taken up to this area where he sees the temple, he's there. For Jerusalem, he's there, there for the Jewish people, but even broader than that, his mission goes way beyond that. And so the devil basically says, look, if you fall off, if you jump off this thing, God will bear you up. God will send angels, and you will not actually die. So again, the issue is the devil, in this case, the devil's actually using scripture against Jesus. So think about this. The devil is actually a very well-trained, very articulate, if you want, theologian. He knows the Bible. The only thing is, is he abuses the Bible. So this, this ought to shock us. I, I would say we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. We love God's Word. But the question is, is it possible that the Bible can actually become sort of its own source of idolatry or mishandled, mismanaged? Absolutely, yes. The devil did that. So the point of the matter is, is that the Bible is not necessarily ever to be an, an end or a, an end to itself. It's a means to an end. It's a means to show us the glory and the greatness of God. In this case, Satan is not interested in the glory and the greatness and the beauty of God. Satan is interested in twisting and perverting the word of God for his own ends. In this case, he's a master at it. So here's my point. 
that it's possible as people who say we love the Bible to actually misuse the Bible in a way that it's not life-giving. Maybe you know scriptures, you memorize texts, you understand certain theological concepts, but at the end of the day, they don't really lead you to a heart that is full of love, affection, appreciation for God. It's just like the devil. Rather than life-giving, it's death-creating. And so Jesus cancels out the misperceptions and the falsities that the devil says by also quoting Scripture again. Then finally, it says in verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So again, what we see with Jesus, three different occasions, Jesus is tempted by the devil. And each of these occasions, Jesus actually uses God's word as a sword, as a means to push back the darkness, to resist, to fight. Jesus comes out victorious every single time. Jesus doesn't give in. Jesus doesn't fall prey. Jesus doesn't fall prey to the corruption. Jesus actually comes out victorious. So here's the question. If Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, holy, does all these things, if he relied upon God's word, how much more do we? I mean, I mean, realistically, how much more do we, who obviously oftentimes we do fall prey, we do give in, we do bite the temptation, how much more do we need to know how to better or more rightly handle this thing called the sword of the Spirit, i.e. the Word of God? Well, I think obviously the answer is really high. We, we, we need to be better at it. We need to really understand how it functions and how it works. So here's what I want to do. Like I said, I really want to get as practical as I can with just some of these things. So I'm just going to go through a handful of these things, and we'll wrap this up. Five of them about, and then we'll see where we go. So first of all, I just want to say that the most obvious one is read and or listen to the Bible. Read and or listen to the Bible. Invest your heart, your mind, your thoughts into God's Word. Uh, Bring it into your thoughts by reading it and or listening to it. So reading it, um, if you don't have a Bible already, buy one. Or if you don't have one or you don't have money for it, we want to give you one. We have a bunch of Bibles, and we always have a bunch of Bibles that we want to be able to give away. We have nice little paper ones back there. If you don't want a paper one, if you want a leather one, we also have this thing called Lost and Found. We've got tons of really good solid leather Bibles, really good ones. You might have to take a little bit of acetone and remove the name off the person uh, it's Bible that's on there, and it's probably have a bunch of notes. You might even find some like little letters and tucked away in the Bibles because sometimes people do that. But the point of the matter is, you can get a really good legit Bible. But figure out a way to get a Bible. If if you know, um, make it a name to actually have a Bible that you will read. Find a good translation that's readable. There's lots of great translations. Um, a lot of people get into a big to do as to what's the best translation. Look, the best translation I would say, and this may not be really the best way to gauge it, but uh, one that works with you, one that works for you. I personally like to read uh, the SV, but I have also invested in, I have like King James Version, um, New King James Version, NIV, a lot of them. Uh, I like to read in the New Living Translation. That's a very readable, easy translation to read, but figure out a translation that works for you and, and, and get it and read it and find a Bible that you can actually value and begin to read it. Another thing is listening to it. I personally, for one, I do read, but most of, most of the times I gain information best by actually listening to it audibly, which is kind of an interesting thing because the whole idea of reading the Bible is really relatively new. Do you understand that? 
Like we talk about some of those, like people have been reading the Bible for like 2,000 years. No, they haven't. As simple as that. No, they haven't. And we know that because most people 2,000 years ago were illiterate. Secondly, nobody had Bibles. Like, like if you had a Bible, it was actually written on a scroll. And scrolls were massive. And nobody would like carry around these big massive scrolls. Nobody had Bibles. I mean, small select few people had Bibles. If you're really rich, you had a Bible. Um, but most people didn't have Bibles. So how did people get the Bible information from God through people into their hearts and minds? Audibly. They talked about it. They, they listened to sermons being preached. They talked about it all the time. The Bible is always being brought into them. So again, go back to our little question I asked earlier. How many of us have Bibles? Most of us have Bibles. So in other words, that alone puts us at light years beyond people 2,000 years ago. Do you understand that? This is not to make anybody feel bad, by the way, but it's just to make us come to a realization that we are surrounded by Bibles, we're surrounded by good theology of the Bible. We were like, we believe the Bible's good, we believe it's valuable, and so on and so forth. But the problem is, is that, for the most part, we don't read it. We don't ingest it into our lives. And as a result, when corrupting influences come, rather than being able to push them back with the sword of the Spirit, we oftentimes fall prey to these things. So, um, another way that you can do this, and I do this often, is just, there's a, uh, an app that you can buy, or actually get for free. It's on uh, both... Um, Droid as well as uh, you know iOS. Um, it's called Uversion. It's, I think this is one of the best. It's it's an awesome thing. What I like about Uversion is again this I, I told you earlier this is super practical for so some of you are just like tuning out. Don't tune out. Just listen. Um, uh, what I like about Uversion is there's like hundreds and hundreds of uh, daily Bible reading programs that you can get involved in. It's awesome. There are so many amazing ones like. Uh, like small versions of the Bible where you can just like, I'm going to read through the minor prophets in like six months or just read through the gospels in like three months, whatever the case is. Or right now, I just started one a couple, about a week after the new year, um, going through the entire Bible in one year. And again, I'm, I'm horrible at this, so don't, don't follow my example. I always, uh, like every like two weeks, I always got to catch myself up to date because I'm always like three or four or five days behind. But the point of the matter is, is every morning my routine, what I try to do is the very first thing I do when I get up in the morning, I find my headphones, I put my headphones in, and I begin listening to the Word of God. And it's usually about four to five chapters, which sometimes can take between like 10 minutes uh, up to around 20 minutes, sometimes half an hour, depending upon the length of the chapters. But I just want to listen to that. So while I'm making my coffee and I can move around and do all sorts of things, clean up, whatever, because I, I just want to get the Word of God in my heart the very first Thing. I don't want to read Facebook. I don't want to, you know, fill my mind with, you know, the, the latest information or the latest news. I want God's word to just begin to take residence in my heart the very first part of the day. Because I know that by the time I begin to start moving into my day, then my mind's thinking about, you know, what's going on, on Instagram or Facebook or what's happening in the news. And uh, it's easy for me to get distracted. So there's like no more place in my heart from that point of the day forward to actually invest in the word of God. Some of us, let me say this as well, some of you guys are more nighttime people. How many of you guys are like nighttime people by nature, all right? How many of you are like morning people by nature? All right, most, uh, sorry, morning people went out, so I'm a morning person. I can, I'm worthless like post 8.30. Um, and so I know people that are like, I read the Bible like late in the night, and like, I'm like that's awesome, I can't do that. Like, I'm, I'm asleep by 9. And but I'm, I'm also, I wake up at like 4.45, 5 o'clock. I just open my eyes. I don't even set my alarm clock. It's every day I just wake up and I'm wide awake. My wife's like, how do you do that? We're on actually two separate uh, time schedules. She's a night person. I'm a morning person. And so the point of the matter is, is find ways 
that work with you biologically and work with your budget and so on and get the Bible into you. Begin to meditate. Think about it. Um, another way is attending church services. We say this oftentimes, but in America today, I just recently saw and heard a statistic that basically said, it came out by Barna Group. They basically said that um, out of the average American Christian, the average American Christian goes to church once out of every six weeks. One out of every six weeks they actually show up at a church service. Um, so if you think about it this way, um, one out of every six times showing up at church, there's, it's absolutely impossible for you to get within the cadences of the church. You cannot be in the rhythm of what's happening in the church showing up every once every six weeks. So let me add one other layer to that. If you are a mom or dad and you got kids and you show up every once every six weeks, um, not only is it impossible for you to be in, within the cadences of the church, it's absolutely impossible for your kids actually to be within that same rhythm. So at some point, there has to be a, a level within your own heart whereby you make up the decision that you will, you will to add to your life things that are of value. All right? So it's not so much can I, it boils down to will I. Does that make sense? Uh, it's can or will. Like most of these things I'm talking about, you know, it, it's, it's a matter of like will I recognize the importance of this thing? Or will I recognize the importance of where I can be fed from this thing and make it a part of uh, a valuable part of my life? So another way to think about this in which you can do this is to memorize it. Memorize scripture. So think about it this way. How many things in our lives do we have to memorize or do we just by nature memorize? Think about how many lines of songs we memorize or Saturday Night Live quotes or, you know, I mean, think about how many things we memorize that it doesn't really take any effort, but we just memorize. It just comes into our mind. We think about it and there it is. We recall it. So, you know, you're hanging out with some friends, you're talking to them and all of a sudden a thought comes to your mind and you're, you know, quoting a line from the officers or something like that. But the, real, the reality is, at the end of the day, those types of things are, for the most part, trivial. They don't help you. They might get a couple of laughs, but you know, five minutes go by, and the laughs are past, and you're like, there's no sustaining like, residue from that. Like, I, I, I'm no better uh, person from that. The reality is, is, I still find myself in the midst of a mess. But the scripture actually says that memorizing God's word uh, is like a treasure being stored up in your heart. Here's what uh, the psalmist says. In this particular idea, Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What he's actually saying is that storing up, treasuring God's word, memorizing his scripture, God's word, actually becomes a means by which my heart now becomes strengthened against corrupting temptations and desires. Does that make sense? So memorize. Um, one of the best ways I find to actually memorize scripture, and again, I told you, it's super practical, um, there is, uh, how many of you guys are familiar with, John Piper has a scripture memor- memorization thing called Fighter Verses. You guys have ever heard of that? Fighter Verses, okay. There's an app that you can download, it's free. Um, now, uh, a good friend of mine actually started, his name is Joel Olympic. he started this thing called the Verses Project. He actually went to Cal Poly, graduated from Cal Poly, he was a worship leader here in the area for a while, actually went to this church for a little bit. He's now a worship pastor out in Colorado. And so he started this really amazing website, it's called Verses Project. How many of you guys are like, in any way, shape, or form, into, like, good music, good design. You like things that look good. You, you like, care about aesthetics. All right, that's, like, most of our church right there. Like, um, like most of our church is, like, designers and musicians and so on. So I, I care about this. One of the things I love about this website is everything about it is absolutely beautiful. 
Like, like what they did is they take scripture and they put it into a way that is very palatable for people that like good music and like good ways of memorizing scripture. So you can download um, uh, wallpaper for your iPhone or your device, iDevice or your iPad or whatever the case is or even your desktop computer and it all, always looks really good. The music that they always provide is always really legit. In fact, Darren and Jesse, our worship leaders here, they've actually contributed music to that as well. Another good friend of mine, Ryan Delmore, is a worship pastor down in um, South County. He's actually done songs for this as well. So there's some really great music on there. It's always really well done. And every song that you listen to is always nothing but scripture, verbatim, word for word. So here's what happens. When you listen to good, solid music that's nothing but scripture, guess what happens? You memorize the lines of the song, which also double as scripture. You're treasuring up God's word in your heart so that you might not sin against God, so that you might thrive, that you might flourish. Um, so memorizing scripture is a really important thing. It takes time to do that. It's hard. Like, be really honest. It's, it's not easy to, to memorize. I mean, it's, I, I wish I could memorize scripture as good as I can memorize uh, one-liners out of, you know, Saturday Night Live, but I can't. So it takes time and energy and effort to go over it, to memorize. That's why I love the fact that there's great music that goes along with it. So check that out. Third one is talk about the scripture. Talk about it with people. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 says. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. So the idea that's basically being conveyed here, God was saying to his people Israel that it's commonly known as the Shema, which is this passage of scripture some of you may be familiar with, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And what God was basically saying is that I want that instruction to be passed down from generation to generation, from a child to grandchild to great-grandchild. And again, they didn't have Bibles back then. So how do you do that? Obviously, they didn't have the Versus Project. They didn't have like all of these things that we have in modernity to be able to do these things. So the way they did that is they talked about the Bible a lot. When they're sitting down at dinner, discussion about Bible. When they're, you know, walking on the way, so that's, that's, that's like code for saying, you know, walking four miles down to the market where you can buy like a dead goat. Um, um, obviously, today, we don't really do that. We hop in the car and we drive five minutes to Trader Joe's. Um, we might get a little bit of traffic, so it might like extend our drive like to six minutes. But the point of the matter is, is that for the most part, we don't have a whole lot of time where we sit around just chatting and talking. Um, there's ways in which you can do this. Uh, Facebook, you know, other forums, um, coffee shops. The idea is develop a cultural habit whereby you have people in your life where you can begin to engage with them about Scripture. That can be within community groups. One of the reasons why I would encourage you, if you're not currently involved in a small group, community group, find a community group. Get involved in one. If none of them are on the nights that work for you, start one. Maybe just grab some people and be like, hey, I got a house. Anybody wants to come over? We're just going to study the Bible and We'll follow along the discussion guide that you know, Pastor Brian provides every single Sunday, every week, and just begin to study and memorize and talk about the Bible because the Word of God is sharper than an intuitive sword, and it is the means by which we can be protected and resist and fight these things. So talk about it. Fourth is doubt your doubts regarding the Bible. Let me say this. We live in a culture, I think more than ever, where there is an onslaught of... Um, doubt that's casted upon the Bible. I mean, let me put it this way. This is not new, though, because some people might be like, well, man, it seems like more than ever in our culture, like, everybody's doubting the Bible. Um, the fact of the matter is it's been doing this for, like, basically since the dawn of time. In fact, the very 
uh, third chapter of the Bible actually starts out where the devil basically says, did God really say? That basically just simply uh, nothing more than casting doubt upon God's word. So this is not new, but what I would suggest is this, is that what reason why it seems so all-pervasive is because we live in a technologically uh, advanced type of a world where information or somebody writes a blog or posts a three-minute YouTube video and all of a sudden that goes viral and everybody knows about it. Or somebody reads a book and all of a sudden now they're an expert on how they know the Bible's so messed up and it can't be trusted and uh, it's so filled with error and we should never ever trust it because it's so incongruent with the culture and society around us. But let me put it this way. Have you ever thought about doubting your doubts? Why is it that we as people oftentimes trust that which we should doubt and doubt that which we should trust? Um, There's great answers to a lot of the doubts that are cast upon the Bible. Have you ever thought about investigating them? Especially if you're one, a person. Especially if you're somebody who's like, I, I, Jesus I love, the Bible is nothing more than highly suspicious to me. And that's really the extent of your Christianity, I would suggest invest your mind in good literature that combats those things. I mean, read C.S. Lewis. Read Tim Keller. Get good resources to begin to combat the doubts that are welling up in your heart. And finally, love Jesus and love what he loved. Do you know that Jesus loved God's word? Every single thing that Jesus said in that season of temptation, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, was combated, not by Jesus' take on stuff, although that would have been really awesome because everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth would have been the word of God, but what Jesus does is he actually taps into the scripture that had already been written, and he recites by memory every single thing that was written in God's word to strike that moment. Um, another great study was kind of done on this. Said there's dozens and dozens of direct references from Jesus to the Old Testament. Now, remember, the New Testament was not written at this particular point. So, what Jesus would have been referring to would have always been exclusively what's called the Tanakh or uh, the writings and the prophets and the law. Um, and Jesus would have been always referring to this. So, the point that I would make is this: is that Jesus literally always spoke God's word. Let me, let me give you another example of how much of a part of Jesus' life this was. See Jesus on the cross. Here he is, literally suffering, dying, being tormented. And he is about to die. And what's Jesus saying? The very thing that Jesus is saying is actually God's word. Jesus is literally quoting Old Testament passages. Now, if you or I were to be on the cross, being mocked because we're naked, being crucified, being tortured, we would probably be shouting profanities at our enemies. Not Jesus. He's quoting Bible verses. Jesus loved God's word. So let me suggest this. If you're somebody that is locked in a, within a pervasive doubt or distrust towards the Bible, and yet you love Jesus, I would suggest, please, for the sake of your walk and your understanding of God, Figure out ways to bring resolve to those doubts. Do research. There's a lot of it available. Begin to doubt your doubts because Jesus loved God's word. If you love Jesus, please also love everything that Jesus loves. Jesus loved God's word. He saw God's word as a valuable means for his life, even though he was perfect. How much more do we? So in short, in closing... The idea of God's word, it can be also summarized by the word of the gospel. 
um, Paul actually begins to kind of merge and bring together the idea of the good word, the word that God has spoken to us is not just some sort of arbitrary word of law and work hard. Or it's God's word to us, the good news, the not good advice, but the good news that God has come to do something, that God has not abandoned you, abandoned you and abandoned us in our times of brokenness and defilement and corruption, but that God has come into our world, into our areas of life where it's just filled with brokenness and has sought to do something about it. We need to hear that message. We have to learn how to become proficient to preach that good news to ourselves because we are constantly in combat. Our minds are constantly being broken down by corrupting influences, by thoughts that promise much but always fail to deliver anything. Or what they do deliver oftentimes leaves us feeling defiled and broken and ruined and messed up inside. But God's word promises to give us life. This is what all the Old Testament writers would have affirmed. This is what Jesus would have affirmed. And this is exactly what Jesus' followers would have affirmed. So if you are a follower of Jesus, just ask yourself the question, where and what role, what place does God's word play in the daily rhythm of your life? Where does it fit? What are the things that maybe you need to ask and look at that are maybe crowding out the influence of God's word in your life? In other words, what are some of the other things in which you have been giving your heart over to? What other influences have actually been exercising corrupting power over you instead of God's word, which can actually bring life? Those are the things that I think, on a very practical level, if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, we have to, at some point, come to grips with the question, how do we view God's word in our lives? So I want to finish. I want to pray. And uh, why don't we all stand? I have the worship team come on forward. If you're here this morning and there are any circumstances in your life that maybe you just need prayer for, maybe there are areas where you feel as if you've been overcome by corrupting influences. Maybe your mind has been filled with doubt over God's word and questions. And again, let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with having questions about the Bible. The Bible's filled with things that are very difficult to understand. I, I get it. But what I'm saying is that there is great scholarly work that's available to help combat those things. And I want to encourage you, find out what those are. If you need help finding out what those are, email me, talk to me. I'm happy to help guide you in some direction to get some good quality information to help combat some of these areas of distrust and doubt within your heart so that you can be equipped with this thing called the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, so that you can stand in the midst of battle. Why don't we just sing, let's lift up our voices. We have communion in the back uh, as a way of just reminding ourselves how God rescued us. Jesus came into this world whole, perfectly whole. The true one whole God comes in this world into people's lives that are broken. He was broken so that we who are broken can be made whole. That's what communion speaks of. It's not just us as individuals being made whole. It's us as individuals through us in community that are also being made whole. So the gospel does this. Partake of the communion. Remind yourself of what God has done. Let's sing. God, thank you for great love. As we respond, there are people here today, God, that just need to be prayed for. I pray that they would find their way over to the area of the cross. Seek out help, input, wisdom, prayer. God, we want to sing to you. We want to respond to you. We want to confess, God, our areas of disbelief, those areas of boredom, God, those things in which in our hearts we would just simply confess, maybe even verbalize out of our lips that we have, rather than finding life, help and 
beauty in your word. We've just been simply bored by it. The confession of those things, God, would bring us to a place of repentance, turning back to you and turning back to life. 